Well, this morning we are kicking off the new year with not an exposition of a text. Um, We are going to get into that next week as we begin to look into Psalm 145 and do a series on the attributes of God. But this morning we are looking at dangers in 2003. I want to just take this morning as has been our custom in the past at the beginning of the year to just do one sermon to warn you of things that you will surely encounter this next year if the Lord tarries. When you're preaching through a book or a passage, a lot of times you don't get a chance to address certain issues that you would like to address, but since the text is uh, um, dictating what you must say, um, a lot of times you can't get to saying what uh, you wish you could unless you take a whole Sunday to do that, so I'm doing that this Sunday. I'm doing that this Sunday. So the goal of this morning is to warn you, to put you on guard. We won't be able to go into any depth, uh, really, as we look at these issues. But hopefully it will um, give you enough so you can be on guard. And if you want, you can study these issues further. Come to one of the pastors and we can direct you to more material if you want to study up further. Now when it comes to error and false doctrine and worldly trends... The church must practice discernment and we must practice um, being on guard and watching because Satan is a deceiver. Satan wants to deceive you. He wants to deceive all of us so that we do not give glory to God. But we are not to be ignorant of his schemes. And this morning I want to give you seven dangers that are facing the church. Seven crucial issues which um, I encountered last year, which I know are still going on and you will encounter in the future. Um, Again, unless Christ um, comes now, which would be fine with me. Now, before we look at the dangers in 2003, I want to just get your mind primed a little bit, and I want to ask you a question. What is the primary purpose of the church? What is the primary purpose of the church? We need to think about this sometime, because a lot of times we're doing little programs, and we're doing ministries, and you know we're doing this, or we're doing that, and uh, we may not stop and ask ourselves, What are we here for? Why does the church exist on earth right now? Why doesn't God just rapture people as soon as they place their faith in Jesus Christ? Can you think of what that answer might be? Well, there's two primary answers. First, evangelism. You cannot evangelize anybody in heaven. Everybody in heaven is saved. Evangelization is something that the church is to be doing now on earth. You are the church. You are to be doing it. You are to be telling people the prob- about their problem of sin and the solution to the problem of their sin, which is Jesus Christ. You are to be sharing the gospel. Because you cannot do that in heaven. There's another thing that you cannot do in heaven... Can you think of what that might be? It's walking by faith. You cannot walk by faith in heaven because once you get to heaven, you will receive what was promised. Remember, the author of Hebrews defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. He gives that huge list of people and says that all these died without receiving the promise, but they had faith in it. The scriptures say no one hopes or has faith in what they already have. And so those two activities are the primary activities we are to be engaging in as the church on earth, evangelizing the lost and walking by faith in the promises of God. Now, knowing these things, where do you think Satan is going to attack? He is going to attack us in the area of evangelizing the lost and walking by faith of the glory of God. He wants to thwart churches from doing evangelism. He wants to thwart you from doing evangelism. He wants to scare you. He wants to intimidate you. He wants to persecute you. He wants to make you feel you're inadequate. Whatever it takes, as long as you don't share the gospel, 
He knows that the gospel is the power of God for all those who believe. And believe me, he does not want you sharing the gospel. And he wants to lead you away from obedience to the word of God. So that you do not give God glory. We need to keep this in mind. Satan is the deceiver. And when he deceives the church, he usually doesn't come in making 180 degree theological shifts. He doesn't come in making radical methodology changes. He comes in as a deceiver with ideas and methods that are two degrees off plumb. Which after a while you slowly begin to wander farther from God and then he makes a four degree shift. And then later on a five degree shift and pretty soon you are so far from God you aren't even heading towards him anymore. And he has disabled the church. So this morning we are going to look at some of the things that Satan is throwing at the church these days. Seven different dangers that you will most likely face in 2003. I've divided them up into four different categories. The first category, attacks on the word of God. The second category, attacks on evangelism. The third category, attacks against the church's purity. And fourth, attacks on God himself. Let's look at each of these. First, let's talk about attacks on the word of God. The first thing I want to warn you of is continuing revelation. Continuing revelation. This is an old but persistent strategy of Satan. Satan has always tried to add to the word of God, to dilute it, to water it down, to mix it with the uninspired words of men. One of the characteristics of the pseudo-Christian cults is that they believe in continuing revelation. They believe that God is still speaking today apart from the Bible. They believe that they have their own inspired writings. You know, Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventism, uh, Christian science all have their own inspired writings. And when push comes to shove, when you get one of them in a dialogue and you begin to show them, you know, the Bible says this and you're teaching that, whose inspired writings do you think have more weight? Of course, theirs do. And there are several fundamental problems with continuing revelation, and it is this. First, God warns us in his word not to add to his word. Secondly, there are no degrees of inspiration. If God inspires something, if he speaks, it is as true as any other time he speaks. There is no degree of There's not, you know, well, the Bible is, you know, pretty inspired and and something else is more inspired. It's either the Word of God or it's not the Word of God. But there are no degrees. Now, Revelation, when I speak of continuing Revelation, it comes in two different kinds. There is general Revelation. And general Revelation is this. Now, think, think clearly here. General revelation is what we learn about God from creation. Not what we learn about our job and not what we learn about what college to go to, but what we can learn about God from creation. For instance, Psalm 19 says the heavens are declaring or telling of the glory of God and the earth and the firmament his handiwork. You can go out and you can look at trees and flowers, you can look at the stars, and you can see some things about God. Now, general revelation is subjective. And what that means is, is it comes from within. It's based off of our perceptions. For instance, you have two Christians standing outside and somewhere far away from here looking at the stars. And um, they're looking up there and they're marveling. And one Christian says, wow, God is powerful. I mean, you can see how powerful he is, how he just spoke all of this into existence. And then the other Christian's going, whoa, God is wise. Just, whew, look at, look at the wisdom. Look at the, how incredible and intricate all this is just all put together. 
Now, even though they're both looking at creation, they both perceive different things. Why? Because the general revelation is not objective. We might read things like Psalm 19 where it says the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Well, that word telling is used figuratively there. It's not that God is speaking verbally to us in a known language. It's that we can observe things about God from his creation. Now, there was another kind of revelation, which is called special revelation. This is the other category of revelation. It is when God speaks objectively. In other words, he speaks in clear and verbal way, as in dreams and visions, or he moves the authors of scripture to write down without error what he wants to say. So if you open um, your Bible and you read John 3.16 and I grab your Bible, I read the same thing and someone else grabs your Bible and they read the same thing because it's objective. The truth does not come from within. It's not based on your perceptions. It's on the page. It's verbal revelation. Those are the only two kinds of revelation that God reveals himself. He reveals himself through the scriptures and he reveals himself through creation. Now you could say visions and dreams and those things also um, are all forms of special revelations. Those are the rare exception. Now, when I talk about the danger of continuing revelation, I'm not talking about people who uh, claim to learn things from God from, from creation. I'm talking about people who claim to have God speaking to them. This is a danger. It is rampant in the church today. When God speaks, it's verbal and it's special revelation. It is common to hear people say today, well, God spoke to me. And told me to do this or that. Or God spoke to me in a vision and dream. Or, you know, I really feel God is telling me whatever. And what they are claiming is that God is giving them new, inspired, special revelation. It's not general revelation. It's God verbally communicating to them. Now, this is no different than what Mormonism and Christian science and the Seventh-day Adventists believe. They believe the Bible has been added to. But people think, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, I'm not adding to the Bible. Oh, yes, you are. Oh, yes, you are. The only difference is they wrote down what God said to them and you didn't. Put it on paper. It's the inspired word of God. It is perfect. It is without error. If it's inspired. If it's not, it's not the word of God. God did not speak. The only real difference is that when they claim to receive revelation, they wrote it down. Most people today aren't brazen enough to do so. But there is no difference. If God is speaking today, he's speaking today. If he's not speaking today, then he's not. But you can't say God is speaking today. He's giving me inspired, perfect, authoritative revelation. But I'm not going to tell you about it. Because the word of God claims to be sufficient, it runs into some problems with this, doesn't it? I mean, think about this. Second Peter chapter 1 says that God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through his precious and magnificent promises. He goes on to say that you do well to pay attention to the more sure word of God which is like a lamp in a dark place. We know from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that all Scripture is inspired by God. It is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for how many good works? Everyone. We know that Jude says that the faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. That means once for all. It's not being added to. Now as soon as you say, well, God spoke to me, what does that imply? It implies that the Bible is not sufficient like it claims to be. Now if the Bible is sufficient, then why do you need more revelation? Do you see the problem there? Now, Satan wants you to be led away from your trust in the uh, sufficiency of the scripture. And this is why. 
because he knows that the word of God is living and active and powerful and sharper than any any double-edged sword. He knows that it is like a hammer that shatters rock and a fire that consumes. He knows it is the only thing that both saves and sanctifies sinners. And so he wants to do everything he can to lead people away from their trust in the word of God. And he's doing a great job. People usually fall victim to this because they don't know the scripture. They don't understand what the scriptures say. They've never studied the Bible thoroughly and the churches they go to usually don't teach them to study the Bible thoroughly and they usually aren't taught how to study the Bible and doctrine and theology. And so they don't, the Bible to them doesn't seem to be sufficient because they don't know what it says. Satan then convinces them that their vision or dream or their feeling or their intuition is God speaking to them directly. And pretty soon, why open your Bible? God speaks to me. I mean, I don't even need to, you know, read my Bible because my quiet times happen when I'm shaving in front of the mirror. He tells me what to do. He, he interrupts me during the day and reminds me of things and, and speaks to me and gives me revelation, my own personal revelation, just for me. First, Satan causes doubt, then he gives people an experience, and soon he has led them away from living by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And of course, when you challenge people like this, what do they appeal to? Do they appeal to the scriptures? No, they can't appeal to the scriptures. They appeal to their revelation, their experiences. You got it. They are convinced that God has spoke to them. And even if what they believe contradicts the Bible, usually they believe it over the Bible. Now today, the Pentecostal and Charismatic and Third Wave churches are all teaching this. This is a standard platform of their doctrine. You go to church, you have a vision, you get a dream. What's wrong with you? You mean, haven't any visions? You have any dreams? God hasn't spoke to you? Now what's wrong with you? Are you saved? The doctrine of continuing revelation is making inroads into the church through books like Experiencing God, which is just a worldwide phenomenon. And that book teaches charismatic doctrine of continuing revelation. Now you might think this is something rather recent, that you know this is a trend that has just happened in the last 50 years, not in your life. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23. It would be good for you to just make a note of this and read the entire chapter because the entire chapter is directed at those who claim God is speaking to them, but of course he is not. But I want to start in verse 21 and read a section out of the middle of Jeremiah chapter 23. Starting in verse 21, Jeremiah, actually the Lord speaking through Jeremiah says... I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have announced my words to my people and would have turned them back from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in the hiding places so that I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and earth, declares the Lord? I have heard what the prophets had said who prophesied falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream, I had a dream. How long is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsehood, even these prophets of the deception of their own heart, who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams which they have related to one another, just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal? The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does straw have in common with grain? In other words, what are these visions and dreams and false prophecies, this straw that's coming from men, have in common with the grain of my word? Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters rock? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from each other. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, the Lord declares, behold, 
I am against those who have prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord, and related them and led my people astray by their falsehood and reckless boasting. Yet I did not send them or commend them, nor do they furnish this people with the slightest benefit, declares the Lord. And it goes on. And if you read in the preceding context, it goes on. The whole point is this. When you depart from the word of God, you begin to grasp straw. It affects your life because there is no power in false dreams and visions and intuitions and emotions to change you. You've probably known some people, I've known people who go to churches where, where you know, they're almost in competition with their dreams and, and well, you know, I had this dream and the next week, well, I had a bigger one. You know, well, well, yeah, well, you know, God spoke to me six times last week, and this is what he told me. Well, that's not what God told me. And they have these competitions to try and have the bigger experience and the biggest revelation. Listen, if you want God to speak, open your Bible. There's 66 books there of God speaking. Zechariah had the same problem, and in Zechariah 10.2 he said, For the teraphim speak iniquity, and the diviners see lying visions and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain, therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted because there is no shepherd. In Zechariah's time, the same thing was happening. People were coming going, oh, everything's going to be fine. God gave me a dream or a revelation or a vision. He spoke to me. He told me everything's going to be hunky, and judgment was coming. The same thing was happening in the New Testament. Paul speaking to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 2 verse 18 said this. Let no one keep, now listen to this, defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand, listen to this, on visions he has seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. The other week, I had a guy come up to me and rebuke me because I didn't believe in, in visions and dreams. He says, God speaks to me. I have visions and dreams all the time. I said, no, you don't. He says, I don't know how you can say that. I said, here, visions you have seen inflated without cause by your fleshly mind. And notice that they take their stand not on the word of God. But they take their stand, plant their beliefs on these visions created without cause. That is not from God by their fleshly mind. And believe me, when you start living by any other thing than the Bible, you will be defrauded of your prize and led away from the truth. You remember what Moses said in Deuteronomy 4.2? And 12.32, whatever I command you, shall be, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. Do you remember the words of Augur in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6? Let me remind you. Every word of the Lord is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. Do you remember what the Apostle John wrote in the last inspired book of the Bible? In the last chapter of the last inspired book of the Bible? In the last words of the last chapter of the inspired book of the Bible? In the last one. He said this, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life, from the holy city, which are written in this book. So I warn you. I warn you against those who are living by private dreams and private visions and private revelations and intuitions and feelings where they say God's speaking to them. You say, well, I'm going to live by the word of God and I'm going to open the Bible. I make my decisions by this book. I live by this book. You can live by whatever you want. But don't be deceived. Secondly, the word of God is being attacked today by Bible translations which purport to be literal translations, but are not. Now, there is nothing wrong with new translations. I like new translations. I'm using a newer translation. I like it. 
I like translations that are accurate and use language that I use. You know, when I read the old King James and I get to, you know, a kind. I don't know what a kind is. You know what a kind is? It's a cow. I had to look it up. And so I like language. You know, I don't say micketh. <laughs> like we sang this morning. That's not part of my category, my, my vocabulary. So I kind of like newer translations for that reason. Also, they're finding more manuscripts, and sometimes they've made some changes which have really been good. That's not a problem. And there is no problem with even translations which don't pretend to be word-for-word translations, like the Living Bible, the Phillips Bible. They're, they, they're paraphrases. They aren't trying to be word-for-word accurate. They're just trying to summarize the story. That's fine. What's wrong is, is when a Bible translation purports to be accurate and it's not, then there's deception there. Because most of you don't know Hebrew and you don't know Greek, so you don't know the difference. You have to trust in the translator. So it becomes a deception. And a case in point is Zondervan's new revision of the new international version. Many of you have the new international version, or maybe you have had a copy of the new international version, or you have one at home, and they have updated it. And now they have today's new international version. It's called the TNIV, and it's now being distributed around the world. And the TNIV has as one of its goals of interpretation not to be more accurate to the text, but to be more politically and culturally correct. For instance, when the original text says brothers, they have added brothers and sisters or fellow believers. When it says he, him, his, himself, they inserted they, them, their, and themselves. Not only changing the gender, but also changing it from a singular to a plural. They have changed forefathers to ancestors. Oftentimes when it speaks of the Jews, they have inserted Jewish leaders because they don't want to be offensive to Jews today who might not want to be lumped into the category of Jews in general. They have replaced man with mere mortals, people, or friends. They have replaced the son of man with human beings. And the list goes on. They've made over 4,000 gender improvements, supposedly. But all of them misrepresent the Hebrew and Greek text. Now the scary thing is that many famous, well-known scholars have approved of this translation. Scarier still is the feminist movement. Some radical feminists have endorsed this translation. And worse still, the Wiccan order, which is the modern-day cult of witchcraft, likes this version. Now, I'm telling you, something's wrong. There's something wrong when people who hate God are pleased with the improvements of a translation. Now, while the today's New International Version has not gone as far as some more radical gender-inclusive versions of the Bible, it has taken a strong step in that direction. I would imagine that in, in 10 years or 15 years, if that was to be revised again, and they made as strong a step in the direction they went this time, God would become the mother, father God or the God-parent Satan knows if he can corrupt the word of God, he can corrupt the gospel. If he can corrupt the gospel, he can corrupt evangelism. He can steal glory from God and he can keep people from walking in the truth. So beware of continuing revelation, especially beware of today's new international version. It's not the same as the NIV. They did not improve it. An interesting thing is is that the Zondervan is now owned by an unbeliever. I don't know how that works when you, know, you have a Christian publisher with an unbeliever who owns it. Secondly, we are facing attacks on evangelism. Now, I mentioned this last year. I'm going to mention it again because I see this all the time, especially when you get around with other churches and you're hanging around with other pastors and you find out what they're doing. It's scary. It's scary because many churches today are buying into the social gospel. Let me define that for you. 
The social gospel is the conviction that the church's purpose is to reform society, to save society, so to speak, to keep it from further degradation and corruption through social involvement. It pushes to replace preaching with picketing and the proclamation of the gospel and sound doctrine with politics of trying to save society, not people, of trying to cure the social ills through man-made efforts. The goal is to improve society through personal involvement. You know, let's all get out there and let's all get involved in society and let's make the society a better place because that's what the church is here for. Now, the social gospel is concerned with making the world a nice place and usually a nicer place for Christians, a more comfortable place for Christians. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if you could just live in the world and everything was like you liked it? There were no more speeders. There were no more drug addicts. There was only just politicians. (laughs) The mail came at the, the right time. And, you know, you could share the gospel openly at work and there wouldn't be any persecution. You could be content and relaxed and come to church and be content and relaxed. Sounds so good. It's so good that it can't happen. Because the word of God says Satan is the God of this world and he hates Christians. And the scriptures say that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The scriptures say that things will proceed from bad to worse. People are not saved by politics and picketing and programs. They are saved by, re- by preaching repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and nothing more. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's wrong to be a Christian in the world and to be involved and maybe to be involved in politics or social programs or whatever. But don't ever be deceived into thinking you can make any lasting change in people's lives or society without preaching the gospel. Many liberal churches today are putting all their money and effort into just being friends with the world. You see their name in the paper, oh, such and such a liberal church, you know, they donated all this stuff and all their people went down and helped all these people and it was just such a kind gesture and the church is so wonderful. Did they preach the gospel? Oh, no. They forgot that. Well, that's what we're here for. The purpose of the church is to preach the gospel and call sinners to repentance. And believe me, when you get out in the world and you start preaching the gospel and call sinners to repentance, you will be persecuted. And they aren't going to put your name in the paper. We are to pray, according to 1 Timothy, that we can live, you know, gentle and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. But we are promised persecution. Sure, there are times in history when God, by his grace, allows certain cultures, um, certain periods of time where people have relative ease as Christians and can preach the gospel and teach the truth, and that's great. That is abnormal in the history of the world. Most liberal churches have become social clubs where their primary purpose is to be these philanthropic outposts of good deeds, the big, giant, you know, good Sam clubs or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with doing good and there's nothing wrong with serving the community. But your purpose as a Christian and your purpose as a church is to preach the gospel. And when people come to salvation, to teach them to observe all that Christ commanded. That's what we're to be about. And the problem is that you cannot help society unless you help individuals. And you cannot help individuals unless you preach the gospel. And if you help someone and you don't give them the truth of the gospel, you are just merely making them more comfortable on their way to hell. And that is not helping them and that's not loving them. You see, if the church was involved in the community and if it was diligently sharing its faith, what would happen? They would receive persecution and people would be saved and those people would be transformed. And those people would become salt and light in the world. 
Because the gospel alone is the power of God for all who believe. And so as a church, we need to be very careful that we stick with teaching the word of God, training people to share their faith, and doing it. Doing the work of the ministry. If you know somebody who needs the Lord, you share your faith with them. You don't bring them here and have me do it. You share Christ with them. You witness to them. And when they repent, then you bring them here. And we'll help train them up. But it's not the church's job, the professionals up front to share the gospel. It's everybody's job. And that's what we all need to be doing. Satan is also attacking, and this is the second thing, he's also attacking an evangelism by redefining what it means to be a Christian. I, this just this amazes me. I, I can't even believe I have to say this. To, the church today as a whole has forgot what it means to be a Christian. I heard an interview by this well-known Christian writer, which all of you would know. And he was asked, you know, what, what actually is a Christian? I mean, what... What is the essence that you have to believe in order to be saved? And you know what this guy said? That's a good question. There are churches all over the place which are full of people who don't know Christ but who think they're saved. And this is not, I'm not talking about churches back east. If you've been here for baptism, you know some of those people have been here. Quite a few people have been saved here. Have come to church week after week thinking they're saved when they're not because no one ever explained to them what it meant to really be a Christian. And these people are often very frustrated, these people who are sitting in the pews week after week who don't know Christ because they want to live like a believer, but they can't. And they're frustrated because they love their sin, they don't love God, they don't love God's word, they don't love God's people, they don't love prayer. And they're frustrated because they they love the things of the world, but, you know, they're convinced they're saved. They're corpses trying to walk by the Spirit, and it doesn't work. Let me remind you that being a Christian is being saved by the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is an act of God, not of men, whereby God predestines a believer unto salvation. Where God draws an unbeliever to himself. Where he illumines their heart to the truth. Where he brings conviction upon their soul. Where he shows them their sin. Where he illumines the truth of the gospel so that they repent. That is, they turn from their wicked way and turn to follow Christ. Where they understand that Christ has died for them on the cross as a substitute, was buried and rose again on the third day, and that they embrace him only as a savior who can save them, not trusting in any of their good works, but only only in what Jesus Christ did. And that is what saves a person. That is the only thing that saves a person. Not a can drive. Now once saved, now listen carefully, a person becomes a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 You become a new creature in Christ and old things pass away And all things become new. You are regenerated, which means you are transformed into a different person. A different being. You were first spiritually dead and now you are spiritually alive. You are resurrected from the spiritual deadness you were in in your unbelief. You are given a new heart. You are given a new worldview. You are given new passions and desires and hungers and thirsts for righteousness. You are changed. That's what salvation is. When a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they are justified before God. They are sanctified from their sin. They are redeemed from the consequences of sin. They are transformed in the image of Christ. They are adopted by God and placed into his family. They are given the Holy Spirit. They are forgiven. They are propitiated. They are delivered from the power of sin and freed from the bondage of Satan and made spiritually alive and on and on and on. Now I want you to know, when that happens to somebody, they're different. They aren't just worldly people professing to be Christ. I mean, you'd have to be, you know, a great musician, a magician to to hide all of that 
work of God in a person's life. And yet there are some people who come and I'm a Christian, but none of that's true of them. Don't be deceived here. You can only become a Christian if you repent of your sin and admit you are a sinner and receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. It is the only way. If you do not repent and believe the gospel, you are not a Christian, you are an unbeliever, and you are professing to be a Christian, though you're not. You are still dead in your sins, and you cannot please God, not even a little. You cannot understand the things of God, and you are headed for the lake of fire. Don't be deceived. Don't let your pride get in the way. If you look at your life and you realize you aren't saved by the evidence that you have never experienced regeneration and the transformation and some of the things I just described there, then repent. Turn from your sin and accept Christ and be forgiven. Satan is trying to prevent evangelism by convincing the church to preach a social gospel, which is not a gospel at all, and by convincing unbelievers that they are Christians when they are not. And I tell you, there is no one more lost than a person who thinks they're saved that is not, that sits in church every week. Because that person isn't even looking to be saved. They're convinced they are. So when you're out there in the world, I encourage you to do this. When you're out there talking to people, when you go out to lunch with people in the church, talk to them about their walk. You know, do you know Christ? Well, tell me about your testimony. How do you know the Lord? See if they know the Lord. I want you to know, I've talked to many people here who don't know the Lord. And they needed the gospel. And so share with them. Moving on. Attacks which keep people from living for the glory of God. This is just a huge one here, and I'm just barely going to touch on it because this encompasses everything we've said. Postmodernism. Postmodernism. You're thinking, what is that? Postmodernism is the current thought of today that morals and truth are relative. That truth and reality are not determined by the word of God, but by what is socially acceptable among Christians. Religion is seen as an ever-involving reality. Postmodernism teaches that you should believe what you want to believe. You know, I mean, come on. If you don't like hell, it's such a negative doctrine. I mean, who wants to mar their thought of God with a God that's judgmental? So we'll just choose not to believe it. Hell's not true now. I just refuse to believe it. Postmodernism. Postmodernism feeds... Every category that we are discussing this morning, it is attack on the word of God. It's attack on God. It's attack on the gospel. It's attack on the church. And you wonder why people want to have their own personal revelations. Postmodernism. You wonder why people want to go to churches that feed their lust and make them feel good. Postmodernism. You wonder what is driving the translations of the Bible that are caving into the feminist agenda and political correctness. Postmodernism. And if the Lord does not return soon, you're going to see a lot more of this. Because it is the mentality of the day. The mentality of the day is you need to be in control of your own religion. And you need to believe what you want to believe, what makes you feel good, what's right for you. And one category of this, second thing. It's postmodernism, which is nothing more than idolatry masquerading as Christianity, is the worship of self. The worship of self is the spawn of postmodernism. And I tell you, this is becoming more and more popular today. You know, we get around, we're supposed to be worshiping God, thinking about who God is, what God has done, thanking Him for what He has done, praising Him talking about his truth, his word, his attributes. Instead, we can be singing choruses and hymns that are full of nothing but feel good. They are not full of theological truth and doctrine that helps us understand God better and his word better. And we need to be careful that we just don't get swayed into, well, I'm worshiping because I feel good. Some people think that because they have left church feeling good, they have done a great job at worshiping God. 
A while back, I was reading a book by a woman named Marva Dunn who wrote a book on worship called Reaching Out Without Dumbing Down. It's got some good things in it. And she's talking in this book about, you know, the worship of self, and she gives an example, and I just had to laugh. Because the example she gave is a song that we have sung. As a matter of fact, it was a song that was playing in the foyer over the speakers this morning. And I was walking around, I was laughing, because I was going to use it as an illustration. I'm still going to use it as an illustration. Here's the song. Most of you know it. It's called, I Will Celebrate. The words are, I will celebrate and sing unto the Lord. I will sing to God a new song. You repeat that. Then I will praise God. I will sing to God a new song. You repeat that. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. I will sing to God a new song. Then you repeat that, which is a repetition of a repetition. I will celebrate and sing to the Lord. I will sing to God a new song. Then you repeat that. And then you repeat all of that. If you want, you can do it again. Don's comments are as follow. Quote, God is never the subject in this song, but with all the repeats, I is the subject 28 times. She goes on to say, with that kind of focus, we might suppose that all the hallelujahs are praising how good I am at celebrating and singing. She says, I poke fun at this ditty because it is not immediately obvious that the song really does not praise God at all. The verbs say, I will, but in this song, I don't because though God is mentioned as the recipient of my praise and singing, the song never says a single thing about or to God, end quote. I just had to laugh because I've sang that song and I didn't realize that. And you know what I thought? I thought, you know, I mean, that's in the scriptures. And I, you know, I will sing. I mean, doesn't that come from a psalm? So, man, I got out my Bible program and I typed in, I will sing and a new song. And I did searches on there. I looked up every single passage. You know what? It's in there. But in every place it occurs, it says why they're singing. I will sing a new song to the Lord because, and then it lists what he done or who he is. Every single one. And this is the kind of thing we need to be on guard against. Shallow, self-serving worship that is really more concerned about us and what we want, not about God and what he wants. And I'm not saying that modern songs are bad. And I know there's a lot of old songs that are not so hot either. Could have picked one of those. As a matter of fact, in the book she does. But the whole point is this. We need to be on guard. We need to be watching. What are you singing? What are you reading? Why do you come to church? What is your motivation? Beware and be warned. You will see more and more man-centered worship coming down the pike this next year. Third, entertainment in the church. Self-worship is a subcategory of postmodernism. And entertainment in the church is a subcategory of self-worship. The church and its desire to compete with the world for the attention of unbelievers has gotten into the entertainment business. The goal is to wow people with media and choreography and dance and contemporary music and pop psychology sermons and espresso machines and whatever they want. There's a church in in Boise, I love this church as an example. I built this big church in this parking lot, and then in the very front of the church, they have this big glass structure that has one of those big playlands inside of it to woo people. You know, mom's driving down the team. The kids go, I want to go there. There's McDonald's. Well, honey, that's, that's not McDonald's. I, what is that? You know, the community center. Well, we ought to go there sometime. Well, it's only open on Sunday. Oh, go there on Sunday. Oh, wow. You know, they got espresso. I either watch my kids and, oh, great music. And, you know, they get this little psychology sermon. They go home. Oh, wonderful. Again, this is nothing new. The great Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon fought some of these same things in the 1800s. And I want to read something and let him speak to this issue because he does it better than I ever could. He did this in a message entitled, Feeding Sheep or Amusing Goats. And this is what he said, quote, An evil is in the professed 
camp of the Lord, so gross in its impudence that the most short-sighted Christian can hardly fail to notice it. During the past few years, this evil has developed at an alarming rate. It has worked like leaven until the whole lump ferments. The devil has seldom done a more clever thing than hinting to the church that part of their mission is to provide entertainment for the people with a view to winning them. From speaking out the gospel, the church has gradually toned down their testimony. When winked at, then winked at and excused the frivolities of the day. Then she tolerated them in her borders and now she has adopted them under the plea of reaching the masses. My first contention is that providing amusement for the people is nowhere spoken of in the scriptures as a function of the church. If it is a Christian work, why did not Christ speak of it? Go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature and provide amusement for those who do not relish the gospel? No such words, however, are to be found. It did not seem to occur to him. Where do entertainers come in? The Holy Spirit is silent concerning them. Were the prophets persecuted because they amused the people or because they confronted them? The concert has no martyr role. Again, providing amusement is in direct antagonism to the teaching and life of Christ and all his apostles. What was the attitude of the apostolic church to the world? You are the salt of the world, not the sugar candy. Something the world will spit out, not swallow. Had Jesus introduced more of a bright and pleasant elements into his teaching, he would have been popular. When many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him, I do not hear him say, run after these people, Peter, and tell them that we will have a different style of service in tomorrow's service. Something short and attractive with little preaching. We will have a pleasant evening for the people. Tell them they will be sure to enjoy it. Be quick, Peter. We must get the people somehow. No, Jesus pitied sinners, sighed and wept over them, but never sought to amuse them. In vain will the epistles be searched to find any trace of the gospel of amusement. Their message is, therefore, come out from among them and separate yourselves from them. Don't touch their filthy things. Anything approaching amusement is conspicuous by its absence. They had boundless confidence in the gospel and employed no other weapon, end quote. And praise God for Spurgeon. We need to beware of postmodern thought. We need to beware of self-worship. We need to beware of entertaining people. The final and single category, attacking God himself. While many of the things we have mentioned have been attacks on God, either directly or indirectly, there is a huge thing that's gaining great popularity in the church today, and it's called the openness of God theology. If you've been a Christian a while, you've probably heard of the two different camps. One's called the, the Calvinistic camp or Reformed camp. And then there is a, another camp called the you know, Arminian camp. And, and these two camps are different. One of the primary differences is, is in the sovereignty of God. What they believe about the sovereignty of God. The Reformed camp believes that God is totally sovereign. He is sovereign over every single thing. For instance, Proverbs 16.33 says, The die is cast into the lap, and it's every decision is from the Lord. Every single one is from the Lord. Every flip of the coin. The Reformed position is that God believes, or God is sovereign, and it believes that God is control of every single thing, directing every event in history to its intended purpose. The Arminian position is not quite as sovereign, especially when it comes to salvation. They believe that God is not totally sovereign. That he relies on men to choose him before he saves them. The Arminian position sees men as free moral agents who have to choose God. Then God responds by choosing the sinner. God does not predestine people to salvation. What they say that means is God looks into the future sees who's going to choose him and sees who he's going to save and then predestines them in response to what he knows the men are going to do in the future. This makes God dependent on man for salvation. 
Many Armenians, depending on what degree they are, also believe that you can lose your salvation. That if you sin, you lose your salvation. So you need to confess and get it back. So what does that make salvation dependent upon? Not the finished work of Christ, not the grace of God, but on what? Your ability to keep your sins confessed. You're jumping in and out of salvation. So one moment you're chosen before the foundation of the world. You're saved. You're justified. You're seated in the heavenlies. You know, you're adopted as sons. You're propitiated. All those different things. Redeemed. And then you sin. And then you're unredeemed. And unpropitiated. And unadopted. And un... You know. Salvation is an act of God. And although you might not agree with that position and say, well, that's, you know, at least the Arminians do believe in the sovereignty of God, that he's in control of history, and, you know, he's, he's sovereign, you know, in other areas, and they aren't that bad. Well, there is another group, this openness of theology group, that has taken Arminianism to its infinitude. God isn't God anymore in this view. The openness of God theology teaches God doesn't know the future. God changes and responds to what he learns from the present as events, as events unfold. God is not in control. God tries to do what he can, but since he can't control men or Satan or angels and demons, he's kind of helpless and he's merely trying to do his best with what men give him. In other words, God created everything and then stepped back and watches chance, the God of evolution, take over from there and hopes he can make it turn out in the way that he doesn't know it is. And you may think, well, Jack, that is just, that is radical. Radical or not, all kinds of churches all around the country and the world and in Burbank buy into that now. Why? Because when God is not in control, then it's easier to explain things like hurting people and sin and catastrophe. You know, 9-11 was a real boost to this. Well, God was not sovereign over that. Oh, yeah? That's not what my Bible says. All those people, those innocent people, none of them were innocent. Well, they died. Everybody's going to die. Yeah, but they died in the in a terrible accident. Well, people die in a terrible accident. Every single one of us is a die. It's appointed for men to die. And after that comes the judgment. Some people die young. Some people die old. Everyone dies. We all deserve it. The wages of sin is death. It's not some strange thing. It may be strange to our country because it's never happened before. But death is deserved. If you're a sinner, since we all are, we all deserve it. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to refute this because it's just so way out there this morning. But I think I'll take the next year to refute it as we go through the attributes of God in Psalm 145. But what have we learned here? We've learned to be warned and beware that the Word of God is being attacked today in many ways. We just mentioned two. That the gospel is being attacked and what it means to be a Christian is being attacked. That the purity of the church is being attacked and God himself is being attacked. They're trying to un-God God. And so what I want to encourage you to do to make a commitment today as you leave here is you get into the word of God and you study the word of God and you learn the word of God and you live the word of God. And you do what Paul commands us to do in 1 Thessalonians 5.21 when he says, examine everything carefully and hold on to that which is good. Do what he told Timothy to do in 1 Timothy 6 when he told him to flee from sin. Have you made a commitment to do that? To fight the good fight, have you made a commitment to do that? To keep the commandment, have you made a commitment to do that? To guard the truth, have you made a commitment to do that? The church is to be the pillar and support of the truth. And you are the church. So do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for how it addresses many trends. It's interesting how Satan in the past has keeps resurrecting the same little heresies and same little doctrinal errors and same little deceptions. But Father... We know that your word gives us discernment and you give us wisdom when we cry out to you. Father, we do want to make an impact on our culture. We do want to make an impact on our society. 
Father, we want to do it through preaching the gospel, by calling sinners to repentance, by training and equipping them to obey you, to teach them to observe all that you commanded. Help this church never to lose its purpose until you come back in glory to receive us to yourself. And Father, if there is a person here who doesn't know you, if there is a person here who has never repented of their sins, turn from them and embrace Jesus Christ and his work on the cross to forgive them and save them, Father, I pray that they would do that now, that they would cry out to you in their heart and they would ask you to forgive them based off of what Christ did, that they might be saved, that they might be turned into new creatures and regenerated and receive all the blessings you have for those who place their faith in your Son. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.